1 John 2, 15 through 17 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I'd like you to imagine this with me as we get started this morning. I want you to imagine that you are sitting down uh, with someone older than you, wiser than you, someone who you admire spiritually. I want you to imagine you're sitting at a cafe, you're sitting at your house, you're sitting across the table, a cup of coffee with somebody. Someone who you know loves you uh, and cares about your spiritual walk and your spiritual life. And wherever you're at in your spiritual walk today, this could apply to you. Maybe you're not a believer, not a Christian. You came to church to kind of check out Jesus or somebody pulled you in here. We are glad and excited that you are here today. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a real long time. Um, We should all have people who spiritually care for us. So I want you to imagine that you're sitting with that person, sitting across the table, and they've called you to the table because they want to encourage you spiritually. They want to encourage you in your walk with the Lord They want to encourage you. Maybe you're going through a difficult time in life. And they ask you to come and have a cup of coffee and to sit down with them. And they begin to encourage you uh, by asking you how you are and asking you how life is and walking through some of the normal pleasantries. And then they start to remind you from Scripture some of the things that is true about you. They start to remind you about your identity in Christ. That as a Christian, you're a child of God first and foremost that your sins have been forgiven. Maybe they challenge you and remind you with that idea that your sins have been forgiven, that you're living in relationship with God, that you're walking with God. Maybe they remind you that you're strong in your faith or you can be strong in your faith. And maybe they remind you some of these important truths about who you are in Christ. Then I want you to imagine that this person who loves you and cares about you, who you know and admire spiritually and look up to spiritually, that they intently look right in your eyes and they ask you to look them right in the eyes. And with a a solemnness and a sobriety and seriousness, they look at you and they, they plead with you. And they plead with you not to give in to the loves of the world. They beg and they plead with you not to give in to the desires of, of sinful cravings. Maybe they know that you're heading in that direction and they're pleading with you to come back. Please don't go there. Please don't do that. Maybe they know that you've been walking with the Lord and you just need that encouragement, somebody to look at you, somebody older and wiser to look at you and plead and say, don't do these things. To say, we know that it's easier to go the worldly direction than it is to follow the Lord. But that person who loves you and cares about you to to plead with you. That's where we are when we come to 1 John 2, 15 through 17. In verses 12 through 14 that we looked at last week, John is reminding his spiritual children. Old man, Pastor John, is reminding his spiritual children of what is true of them. And then today, in the first real true imperative, the first true real command that we get in this entire book, he will look at them, And he will say, and and metaphorically speaking, because he's writing a letter, but many people believe that this letter was actually taken and, and preached, that he's begging and pleading with his people, do not, please do not love the world or the things in the world. Please do not chase after the world and the things in the world. Please do not give your heart and your desires and your affections to the world and the things in the world. That's what John is doing as we come to these verses because he loves his people and he cares about his people. And as I stand before you today, this is a solemn message and it's a serious message and it's a message that couldn't be more timely. 
Because we live in a worldly culture. We live in a liberal environment. We live in a place where everybody and everything is saying, go the way of the world. And on Sunday mornings, you come in for 45 minutes and the guy stands up and opens the Bible and says, no, don't go that way, go this other way. And this is clear and direct and it's bold and at times it may be a bit confrontational. But this morning, I want you to hear John's words of plead with all of us. And maybe you're here today and you actually need to be the pleader for somebody else. You need to be the person that calls somebody else to that table so you can look them in the eye and say, I love you and I care about you. Please don't do this. Some of you are in that position right now with friends, with family members, with coworkers, with whoever it is. And maybe you're here today and you just need somebody to plead with you. And if I can stand before God and before you and I can plead with you this morning and draw you back, and maybe you're standing on the precipice of going the way of the world versus the way of the godly, I'm going to plead with you this morning. We're just going to walk through the text, and I want you to see John's plead to his people that they would change their affections, that they would direct their affections not toward the world but toward God. If you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, and again, just the beginning of verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. And I want to clear up a couple of things that are often misunderstood as we come to this text. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, well wait a minute. Here he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Does that mean I, I can't love good like tacos? Does that mean I can't love the mountains? Does that mean I can't love just having a good time, a sunny day when those come six months from now? No, that's not, that's not what he, in fact, means. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, wait, John says don't love the world or the things in the world, but didn't John record those words that are attributed to Jesus for God so loved the world that he gave us only begotten son? So what's going on here? And I'll explain it to you by explaining two key words in these first, this first half of verse 15. The first one is the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. What does he mean by the world here? I'll give you a, a couple of definitions. When John is talking about the world in this sense, he's talking about this human society that is controlled by the power of evil and is organized in opposition to God. Okay? Human society, life and culture, life outside of church, the life that you do every day when you're driving on the freeway, you're going to your job, you're hanging out with your friends. Human society that's controlled by the power of evil. Do we believe that there is evil at play? That there are evil forces at play? That we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world? We believe that, Ephesians 6. And organized in opposition to God. That, that's the world around us. Another way you can think about it is this. The values, the attitudes, and actions that characterize life apart from God. Okay, The values... The things that we value, our attitudes, our mindset, the values and attitudes and actions that characterize life apart from God. If you're not into taking lots of notes, i just give you one word. Worldliness. Okay? We all know what we mean when we say worldliness. We mean like the Bible says one thing, culture says something different. Worldliness is we go with culture, not with the Bible. He says, do not love the world or things in the world. He's talking about worldliness. And here's the problem with us as Christians. Okay, if you're here and you're, you're not, not in the church, you get a free pass on this one. Those of us who gather here regularly, open this book regularly, read it, study it regularly, here's what we think. 
We think worldliness is out there and godliness is in here. And we couldn't be more mistaken. Right? We think worldliness is what all the world does. Man, worldliness is what worldly people do. The evil, the bad, the terrible, the crazy people. But we Christians, we're not worldly, we're godly. And I want you to know that it goes so much deeper than that. And I want to give you some important examples. Because as we talk about the world, worldliness versus godliness today... It's important that we see that we can all fit in that category of worldliness. So I'll give you four examples. We'll talk about how the world sees something and then how God's word sees it. We'll see where we fit in. Let's start by talking about the self. Okay? Self, you, yourself, your person, me. The world sees self as autonomous. It's my body, it's my choice. Right? Autonomous. I make my own choices. I make my own decisions. I am my highest authority. No one stands over me and tells me what to do. Personal autonomy is paramount today. That's where you get pluralism. That's where you get all the other isms that that exist in the world. It's because of self-autonomy, that we want to be the highest. We want to be God. That's what the world says about self. What does God's word say about self? There is one God, and guess what? I am not him. You're not him. There is one God. I am not autonomous. I am subservient. I was created the best place I can live and be is living under God and his word. Right? So, so that's, that, that's the two values to, of, of self. Let me ask you this. How often do you lean towards self-autonomy versus how often do you lean toward, I just really want to like, be subservient to God? We have those people who are just like, I just love the fact that I don't get to be number one in my own life. Right? I love it when other people tell me what to do. I just get really excited. No. See, we all tend to lean toward that. So there's self. And then there's the big three, money, sex, and power. Right? We could talk about all three of those, what, what the world says about money. M- money is a God to be served and be, to get as much as we can, grow my bank account as big as I can, do as much as I can, and, and I make money, and other people, money is my God. And other people serve me so that I can make more money. The word says money is a gift to be stewarded, to serve God and other people. That doesn't mean that you're evil if you have a lot of money and you're good if you have a little money. It doesn't mean that you're evil if you have, you're good if you have a lot of money and evil if you have a little. Those are two different kind of theologies that Christians sometimes teach. No. But see, Scripture has a different view on money than the world does. But let me ask you this. Which way do you tend to lean? You tend to lean toward, man, money is a gift. I can use that money to serve God and serve other people. And if I have more money, I have more to steward. And if I have less, I still have an important opportunity to steward. Or do I tend to lean toward, ah, I need to make sure that the bills are paid. Ah, I need to make sure that the vacation's paid for. Ah, I need to make sure I have all the things taken care of. And what about my retirement? What about, what about? Which way do we lean? Money and sex and power and so many other things. You can see how the world thinks a certain way and values things a certain way and how God has a different set of values. When he says, do not love the world or the things in the world, he's talking about what direction are our affections pointed. That word love is an important word. When he says, do not love the world, he means this. He means to place a higher value on to place a higher value on the values of the world, the things of the world, than the things of God. 
What are my fundamental values, the things that I fundamentally value more than anything? What are my deepest desires, my greatest affections, my greatest loves? What are the things that if it got taken away from me, then I just, I couldn't exist, I couldn't be myself? That's where our loves are. And I want you to see today that this love of the world is often overt. I sat with something, someone just recently, and I could tell plenty of these stories. You don't know these people, but I sat with someone recently and just heard this story of someone just chasing overtly after things of the world. Someone who's supposed to be a Christian, just overtly chasing after the things of the world. They're not trying to hide it, not trying to pretend, not trying to... Uh, things that like would make me blush as a pastor, right? And shouldn't make you blush even though you're not a pastor. That's overt. That's like, duh, that person's like just running as hard as they can toward the world. But most frequently, it's just attitudes. It's just these little things that come in. It's insidious. It's just kind of stuff that, that comes in in little ways and what we listen to and what we watch and the things that we allow into our life. The love of the world. When he says do not love the world, he means this. Do not let your life be shaped by worldly values. That makes sense? Do not let your life be shaped by worldly values. Now let's take a little test. How many of you have one of these guys right here with you? Got your phone? You can get it out if it's not on silent, as we know. Probably should do that right about now. Is my okay, airplane airplane mode is a good mode. What look at me right quick. What does this tell you about what you value? What does this tell you about your affections? What does this tell you about your deepest desire? Did you know that like no other time in human history, we can find out pretty much everything we know need to know about our hearts right here? What does your phone reveal about your affections? And just so we can get personal, I wrote some areas down. As I said before, this is a really personal message, right? But I want to remind you that I have had to wrestle with this all week, and you only have to do it today. But I thought about it. What, is this, what, is, what does my phone say about my affections? If you pull out your phone, and don't do this right now, but if you pull out your phone and you open your calendar app, what does that say about what you love? What does your calendar app say about what's most important in your life? Your kids' sports, your kids' drama, your kids' this, your kids' that, your kids' the other, your kids' are everything, so your kids are your idol. Your job meeting, the other meeting, the next meeting, another thing, another thing, all job, everything's job-related, and maybe a little bit of time in here for family every once in a while. Isn't your job's your idol? Church activity, another church activity, Bible study, prayer, then church is your idol. Wait, church can be, yes. Can church be an idol? Absolutely. Because it's all about my heart. You know, your calendar can tell you about what you value, about your deepest desires. Some of you are like, well, I don't write anything down, so I'm good. The way that you spend your time, I would challenge you. I did this for a while, and it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge. Have you ever done one of those uh, track your food apps? Don't, don't raise your hand, sorry, you don't have to do that. <laughs> I started tracking my time. So instead of schedule, just scheduling ahead of time, I had this app, and after I did stuff, I would, schedule, I would write it in there, and then it broke down like when I spent my time doing things. That's pretty telling. And that doesn't mean that I have to spend more time with my face in my Bible than anything else. 
but the way that you spend your time tells you something about what you value. If you have no time for church, church activities, church people, spending time in the Word, you have no time for personal Bible study, personal prayer, family, anything, if you have no time for any of that kind of stuff, but you have time for all of the other things, that says something about, do I love the world or do I love God? That's only one app. Should we move on? What about your banking app? I used to say your checkbook, but I don't even know if half of us know what those are. <laughs> but you can open your banking app, and it tells you some things about your values, about your deepest desires. Because not only how I spend my time, but how I spend my money is driven by my affections. We've all, most of us have a mortgage or rent to pay. Most of us have either some sort of car payments or things like that, and we get that. Did you know that even those things can tell you about what you value? Because as American Christians, as I've said before, we are prone to spend money that we don't have on things that we don't want, to impress people that we don't even like. You think about that? Sometimes we spend money that we don't have to buy things that we don't really want, to impress people that we don't really like. And that drives our life. For many of us, standard of living is our idol, not quality of life. Scripture teaches that quality of life should always trump standard of living. And that's why whether you have a lot of money or a little bit of money, the way that you spend your money is important. Because you can tell about whether you love the world or you love God in simple things like your banking app. You could open your social media app and the things that you like and the things that you love and the time that you spend, the amount of time that you spend on that will tell you about the things that you value. You can then open your text messaging app and that would tell you something about the things and the people that you value, the types of relationships that you value. All of those things are what it means when it says the world. Shopping sites, your internet browser history, all of those kinds of things. And, and church, that's just on your phone, right? You see, it's easy to say do not love the world or things in the world, but the room gets a lot quieter when we start putting it in those kinds of terms. And it should. All week I've been wrestling with what are the things that in an insidious way am I allowing into my life and into my family that are really the things that are dragging us toward the world when we should be dragging ourselves, moving ourselves toward God. When John sits down or when John writes this letter and he calls these people, do not love the world. He calls them to an action. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's what he's calling them to. In their day, there were all kinds of influences, just like there are in our day. And in, in our day, there are so many things that will pull us away from the Lord. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Look at the end of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, this duality of darkness and light has been part of 1 John. He's been doing this the whole time. God is light, and Him is no darkness at all. Walk in the light, don't walk in the darkness. He's just doing it again with different words here. Where He's going to say, there's worldliness and there's godliness. It's the same duality. And he's, when He says in that verse, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in Him. He's saying this, Living for the values of the world is diametrically opposed to living for Christian values. They are mutually exclu exclusive. You can't have both at the same time. We can't have a little world and a little God. Don't we try to do that so much? A little bit of world, a little bit of God. On Sunday, God, I'll give you my Sunday. Then Monday through Saturday, it's all me. 
right? Live like hell Monday through Saturday, go to church on Sunday. And you can be a good Catholic and do that. Right? Some of you have come out of Catholicism. You can be a good Catholic and you can do that. You live however you want Monday through whatever day you go to Mass. Go do penance for all of it and go back out and do it all over again. Can I tell you something? James chapter 4, verse 4 says this. Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Friendship with the world. Locking arms, locking hands with the world is hatred toward God. Does that mean that we don't love people who are in the... No, we love people who are not believers. We love people who have a different worldview, a different value system. This is not us versus them. We love those people. But the values, church, the values are different. When he says don't love the world or things in the world, I need you to see like real things, real things that are in your heart and in your mind. But I also need us to see that God will not compete for your affections. God will not compete for your affections. In the Old Testament, a couple different times, this is the Lord your God is a jealous God. People who don't quite understand that, by the way, say, that's not okay. God can't be jealous. Did you know that for God to be anything other than jealous would be considered idolatry? You know that? Because worship of anything other than God is called what? It's called what? It's called idolatry. When I worship anything, in other words, when my affections are for anything other, more than God, I love anything more than I love God, it's called idolatry. So for God to be okay with us loving him a little bit and loving the world a lot, that would mean he's condoning idolatry. And God will not compete for your affections. You're going to go and do your thing and chase fame and power and money and success and chase the good life and chase the American dream. You know what God's going to say? Have at it. And he's going to have something to say in verse 17 about it as well. I don't believe that God's just going to come chasing you down or he's waiting in heaven like, oh my gosh, I hope that soon. No, God is not going to compete for your affections. For each and every one of us, the way that we live our lives tells something about our affections and who we love. And he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, he breaks it down. He wants us to be really clear. So what does that mean, the world? For all that is in the world, okay? That doesn't mean tacos and Mount Rainier. It means all of the worldly value system, all, all of sinfulness, all of life apart from God can be summed up in what he's getting ready to say. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Some people have seen, not everybody, but some people have seen, again, in these three categories, uh, Eve's initial sin, when she listened to Satan and took the fruit and ate of the fruit. Some people have seen a correlation there. Others have seen in the ministry and the, the temptation of Jesus that there's a correlation in the three temptations of Jesus and the three temptations here. I'd say that there's a broad correlation between them. It may not be one for one, but there is a broad correlation because what he's trying to show us is how much sin permeates our life, how much sin permeates our society. So I want you to see each of these three. He starts with this. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. Some of your translations say the word lust, the lusts of the flesh. That's how I memorize it. And, and if you're reading a, a 2011 NIV, it'll say the lust of the flesh. If you're reading a, a NIV from 1984, it'll say something different. If you're reading the English Standard, it says the desires of the flesh. Epithemia, the word that is lust, or is 
translated desires here, means any kind of desire. Like I have a desire to go home and eat a bunch of, of uh, Super Bowl food at 3 o'clock this afternoon. I'm excited about that. Amen, anybody? Okay. That's a desire. Typically, though, in the New Testament, that word that's translated here is used in a negative way. And that's why they translate it lust, the lust of the flesh. What he's talking about is this. Any desire that's centered in my sinful nature without regard to God's will. Any desire that I have. So if I desire to go home and go to a Super Bowl party and eat until I can't move, or for some of us, maybe a little bit more seriously, drink until I can't go to work tomorrow morning, that's called sin. Okay? Anytime I pick up my phone and I open my internet browser and I have a choice of what to look at and what not to look at, and I make the wrong choice, that's called a sin. I'm scrolling through social media, and I see something, and it causes a lustful thought. That's a sin. He says, the lust of the flesh. Any desires is centered in my sinful nature without regard to God's will. The NIV calls it the cravings of sinful man. Cravings. I just have to have it. The cravings of sinful man. It's things that are self-centered. Things that are physically focused. Here and now. Eternally, things that are eternally worthless. And he calls it the lusts of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. And that word flesh is really interesting um, because it just means our, our sinful nature, our human nature apart from God. And I want you to go on a little field trip with me to Galatians chapter 5. Take your Bibles and go to Galatians 5. Because when it comes to desires of the flesh, desires of my nature apart from God, nobody unpacks this better than the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 and following. I want you to get a real clear picture of what John is talking about when John says the lust of the flesh. And Paul in Galatians will give us a real clear picture. Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. That's kind of Paul's way of what John is saying, living in the light. Not walking in darkness, living in the light. Walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify, give in to, fulfill the desires of the flesh. That same idea. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, keeping you from doing the things you want to do. Same message as John has been giving us. There's walking in the darkness, and there's walking in light. Verse 18, if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And then look at verse 19 and following. He's just going to give us a laundry list. Now the works of the flesh, the, the, the things that the flesh does, that we do on our own. Sexual immorality. I'm going to stop there because it's at the top of the list and it's at the head of the list for a reason. When we think desires of the flesh, lusts of the flesh, usually our minds go straight to something sexual. And it starts with that, but it's so much more than that. But it does start with that. And I want to say this, that one of the greatest ways that, that both men and women, yes, women, are drawn away from godliness and drawn toward worldliness is through some sort of sexual immorality. And I want to be clear about this. I'm not pastoral if I don't talk about it. Okay? That it's through some sort of sexual immorality. And we know that at least it used to be more that the men were the ones that were looking at, at things and were more visually stimulated and visually focused and that led to affairs and led to all kinds of ugliness. And that women, it used to be more emotional. Did you know that now, and I'm not going to give you statistics, but now that that gap 
between men and women is actually shrinking quite a bit in the looking at it category. That's scary. But, scare, but, but sexual immorality starts in our minds. It starts on our, on our phones with a text to somebody that we think we're just kind of being funny. It starts with an inappropriate joke. It starts with an inappropriate comment to a coworker. It starts with something that we've seen, not even on a naughty website. I was blown away. I don't do a lot of social media, and a lot of it, honestly, you guys, is for this very reason. But the girls are all talking about Pinterest. And my wife said, like, that people are, I thought Pinterest was for craft projects. My wife said, no, there are actually other projects that are being posted on there as well. I didn't know that. That people are using sites like that. That it's everywhere. It's all over the place. Sexual immorality. And nothing will pull us away from godliness and pull us toward worldliness like that will. And men, we need to guard ourselves. Ladies, we need to guard ourselves. You need to guard yourself against inappropriate thoughts and inappropriate actions and inappropriate behaviors and inappropriate looks and inappropriate, all of those things that we need to guard ourselves because that's the way that the enemy is using. And if the enemy can capture your affections in this area, very few and far between. I sat with a group of pastors on Monday and Tuesday of this week praying for, we had a, a prayer retreat. And one of the pastors is about my age, has only been a pastor for five or six years, and, and told us a really, what I thought was a cool story. He said, well, I had my first one this last week where the lady showed up on the front doorstep crying. She's two weeks from giving birth to their fifth kid, and the husband, she found out the husband's cheating on her. Two weeks from giving birth to kid number five. And she's distraught, she's a mess, she can't believe it. So they start the counseling process. And I guess this, they had found out about six weeks before this, but they had started the counseling process, and for about a month, the guy just didn't want anything to do with any of it. But the last couple of weeks, God has softened this person's heart, this man's heart, and he's coming back, and he's renouncing those ways and those relationships, and he's coming back, and God's softening the wife's heart, and, and they're being able to start to work it out. And I said to that pastor, I said, that's the first time I've heard that story. I've heard the first half of that story many, many times. But the second half of a story like that, man, that's the first time I've heard it. Because usually when we go that direction, it's so very, very, very difficult to come back. Because once the enemy captures your affections, he's captured your soul. And so I want us to be on guard. This is real stuff in real life. And just because I'm not out having an affair with somebody doesn't mean I'm not struggling in this area. Just because I'm not actively viewing pornography doesn't mean that I'm not struggling in this area. It can be so many things. And I love you and I want you to know it. So in Galatians 5, he says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, all of those things are sexually related. Verse 20, he says idolatry. Idolatry, anything that we say or do that we put above God, idolatry. He says sorcery, and that, that one, some of us take a little deep breath, right? Like, oh good, there's one I'm not. And I told the first, like, I really wanted to put a Harry Potter joke in here, but I'm not going to. Enmity means hatred, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. Right? Look, if you're a Niners fan and you're a Chiefs fan today, just hug each other and get along. I've got a really rabid Niners fan that's coming to my party today. I've already worn the, worn the guy. Okay? But seriously, though, dissensions and factions and rivalry and all of those things, that's worldliness, not godliness. 
He walks all the way down through the list. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. When we go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, verse 16, and he says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, that's what he's talking about, church. He's talking about all of those things that would pull us away from God and pull us toward the world in small, insidious ways, as well as overt ways. He then says the desires of the eyes. The desires of the eyes is short-sightedness, a short-sighted desire for what we can see. We're so attracted to what we can see because we can see everything these days. We can see everything. I was watching a, a documentary on Abraham Lincoln with Maddie the other night. It was really interesting because like Lincoln would go to these different places that he had never been before and nobody would recognize him. Do you know why in that day? Because they didn't have TikTok, right? And he would go and he would show up and people wouldn't know who he was because they had never seen a picture of him. Today you can see everything and anything at any time. My Bible Gateway app, man, I'll go like, you know, I'll look at something uh, like REI website or I'll look at some clothes or something like that. And then I'll go over and open my Bible Gateway app. And you know what's on the side of the thing on my Bible Gateway app? You need this shirt. You need these snowshoes. I'm like, wait, I'm reading the Bible. Wait, what? Ah, right? Because you can see everything. They pay people millions of dollars. If you haven't watched The Social Dilemma, they pay people millions of dollars to figure out what you like and to win your affections, right? To win your affections. He says the pride of life, desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. The New Living Translation is interesting here. It's, this is actually an interpretation. It's not a translation, but the New Living Translation says this, pride in our achievements and our possessions. Pride in our achievements and our possessions. Here's what that is. He's talking about an arrogant spirit of self-sufficiency. He's talking about living for recognition, 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 status, living for advantage. He's talking about self-glorification. Pride in our achievements and possessions. I want you to think about it like this. Pride in and then fill in the blank. Ready? Pride in our job title. Pride in our bank account. Pride in the square footage of our house. Pride in our trophy case. Pride in our vacation plans. Pride in our degrees. Pride in our skills. Pride in our accomplishments. Pride in our looks. Pride in our closet. Pride in our collections. Pride, pride, pride. Are any of those things bad in and of themselves? Here's where it gets interesting, right? Clothes, not bad. Having a job, not bad. Having a bank account and savings, not bad. Having a home that you can use to serve God and other people, not bad. Going on vacation, not bad at all, right? No, no. But what it comes down to is when my pride is in that thing, when this becomes an identity issue, when my identity is wrapped up in who I am in my job title or who I am as a retiree or who I am as a grandparent or a 
parent or any when my pride, when my identity is wrapped up in that thing, when my sufficiency, when all of my significance comes from look at my business, look at my 401k, look at my, you fill in the blank, when my significance comes from that thing, then you know what happens? Then it rules my calendar app, then it rules my banking app, then it rules my values, it rules my family, it rules my free time, it rules all of those things. And I need you to know and I need you to hear that the things that we're talking about today, that they're not just things. What verse 16 is doing right here is what one person said it like this. This is a quote. It's a sweeping portrait of what it means to be seduced by worldliness. That word is intentional, seduced. Because that's what it's doing. That's what your social media account is doing when it's just pushing and pushing and pushing those things. That the world is seducing us with all of these things. I told the first service, YouTube is not like a, a sinful thing inherently. Last Sunday we went home from church and I was tired and we ate good food and we were all together as a family. And we spent like three hours watching YouTube shorts and laughing. But you know what? We had it on the TV. We were all sitting around. It wasn't all five of us in different rooms on our phones, not sure what anybody's watching and totally disconnected. We laughed hard and we laughed for a long time. And I felt refreshed by YouTube shorts. So I don't want you to think that I'm just preaching against everything out there and we need to become, you know, crazy monastics or something. That's not what we're saying. What I care about is our identity. What I care about is where we find our meaning and our significance and where we value because your values determine your affections. The things that you value determine what you love and what you chase after. And at the end of the day, what God is after is our affections. He says it's a sweeping portrait of what it means to be seduced by worldliness and the allure of all that sin has to offer. We don't sin because it's not fun. We don't sin because it's boring. We don't chase the world because, oh my gosh, this is just the worst thing. Amen? Right? No, we, we sin because it's seductive and it's alluring. We go down the path of worldliness instead of following godliness because it's seductive and worldly and alluring. And what I want you to see is this, is that surface issues like money and sex and power are really just that. They're surface issues. They're like the weeds. And as you know, you can pull the dandelion, and if you just pop off the head, what's going to happen? It's going to come back in no time. One commentator said this, the underlying problem is radical autonomy of the human spirit that insists on being its own God. The radical autonomy of the human spirit that says, I'm God. I'm autonomous. I get to choose. I get to decide what I chase after. I get to decide what I value. I get to decide what I do. And not God. That's the real issue. Verse 17. I want to go back to the table. Because I think this is where we need to be. When I started this off, and we start talking about sin, and we start talking about the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, what can happen is this. A pastor can, the, the preacher can start meddling, is what they used to say back in the day. right? The preacher's meddling. You know what that means? It's just getting a little bit too personal for me, Pastor. All right? Thank you. But at the end of the day, 
here's what you need to see. And the reason that I started out like this, somebody older, somebody more mature, someone who loves you, someone who loves the Lord, looking you in the eye and pleading with you, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And they're pleading with you and they're calling out to you. And here's why. It's not because they want to have their way. They don't want you to have any fun. They think that their way is great and they want you to go their way and they just don't want you. No, here's why. Verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. You want to chase it? You want to chase the world? You want to chase the bank account? You want to chase all the stuff? You want to have all the fun? How many times have I sat in my office, in room 102, even one time in the cry room, and begged and pleaded with somebody, don't do this because you know what's going to happen. Don't throw away your life. Don't throw away your marriage. Don't throw away your relationship with your kids. Don't throw away your legacy. Don't cast dispersion on the name of the Lord for a night or for a season. Sat across somebody's kitchen table. Please don't do this. It has lifetime consequences. And time after time after time after time, go the other way. I'm not sitting there because I'm the pastor, because it's just part of my job. The world is passing away along with its desires. The reason that John is crying out, the reason that we have this in the text, the reason that the Apostle Paul says what he does is because the world is passing away along with its desires. Nothing. They're going away. There was a great man in the Old Testament. One of the greatest men who ever lived. Some say, especially in his early and late years, probably the wisest man who ever lived. And he was a great man of God the, on either end. But about the time that he was my age, and the age of many of you in this room, he had some real significant problems and issues. Some would say he had about 999 significant problems and issues. I'm talking about Solomon. Remember? 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's a problem. But the scripture is clear that the reason he had so many of those was political alliances, chasing wealth, chasing fame, chasing glory. And he writes this book at what I believe is the end of his life. He writes this book in, in the Old Testament. It's called Ecclesiastes. And it's an old man looking back over his life. And he says, I've tried all the things. Because I want to try to find meaning and significance. I tried all the things. And he gives you the list. If you haven't read it, it's interesting. He gives you the whole list. And right at the beginning, he starts out. And he says, meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Or vanity, vanity. And that word, meaningless or vanity, it's a, it's a really, uh, it's an interesting word. Here's what it means. You know what, when you go outside and it's cold outside on a day like this morning, you go outside and it's cold, and you walk outside and you go like this, and you see the breath, you know what I'm talking about? That's the word. Meaningless. That, that's what it means. It's actually a word that's meant to draw that type of intonation in your mind that it's just, and then it's gone. It's a vapor. It's just gone in an instant. And at the beginning, Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. At the end, after he said, this is all the things I, ch I chased for meaningless, and, and all of those things were just like, here and gone. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Now that the end of the matter has been heard, fear God 
and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He talks in there about how you can rightfully enjoy things. He talks about how you can rightfully have fun and enjoy food and drink and sex and friendship and life. He actually talks about those things. He says at the end, it all has to be enjoyed in the context of this. Fear God and keep his commandments. You come back to 1 John, and that's exactly what John is saying when he says, the world is passing away. Gone. Your life, your pursuits, your affections, my life, my pursuits, my affections, all the stuff. Gone. They're going to show a slideshow at the end of your life. People are going to laugh. People are going to cry. People are going to go into that room. They're going to eat some cake. And then they're going to leave. That's it. There's more to it than that. The world is passing away along with its desires, but but the man who does, whoever does, the will of God abides forever. There's a but. There's a better way. There's a different side to the story. John Piper wrote a book. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. It's a great little book. And he, he calls these things that we chase, he calls it the trifling fog. He talks about the trifling fog that fogs us in and, and keeps us from seeing that what God has done for us. And he says this, At these moments when the trifling fog of life clears and I see what I'm really on earth to do, I groan over the petty pursuits that waste so many lives and so much of mine. I don't want that to be true of any of us. The world and its desires are passing away. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So I want to close by applying this. We're not going to chase the world and the things of the world. What are we going to do? We're going to say no to the world and worldly desires and worldly values. What are we going to do? There's two different ways you can go about this. There's the way that most Christians and most of Christian history has gone about it. And that's the, that's the self-denial way, right? That's called self-denial and separatism, right? I could see something bad on the internet, so the internet's bad. I could see something bad on TV, so TV's bad. I could eat the, too much food, so food's bad. There's separatism that would say we just need to deny ourselves and separate from everything. Did you know that that works a little bit for a little while and creates a lot of really grumpy Christians in the meantime? Amen? Did you know that there's a better way than that self-denial? It's called giving your heart something greater to love. Giving your heart something greater to love. So i end with this quote today. The human heart will never relinquish its love affair with the world until it finds something greater to love than the world. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old love is by the expulsive power of a new one. I want to read it again. The human heart will never relinquish its love affair with the world until it finds something greater to love than the world. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old love is by the expulsive power of a new one. What John wants for us this morning in this plead is that we would redirect our affections. If you're not a Christian, that you would redirect your affection, your love to Jesus. That you would admit that you're a sinner. That you would believe that Jesus died in your place for your sins. And that you would confess Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. 
redirect your affections from wherever they've been to Jesus. You can do that right here, right now. You don't have to come talk to me, need me to pray for you, anything like that. You just pray and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins. Give him your heart. For all of us, though, we need our affections to be redirected. God knows what he's doing and working in your heart. He knows what he's doing and he's working in mine. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. I'm going to pray that God would help us to redirect our affections. I want you to pray to God quietly on your own behalf because you know how God's working as well. Father, we are so thankful that we have your word. We are so thankful that we have the opportunity to see what is better in life. God, I pray that in the midst of all that's been said this morning and all that's been done this morning, God, that as we are looking directly at your word, as we're looking directly at what you have for our lives, that we wouldn't see this just about a bunch of rules and regulations and a bunch of don't have fun and don't do these things. But we see this as you, in a way, pleading with us through your word for what is better. God, help us to, to fall in love with you, to stay in love with you, to grow our love with you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.